0: All right, if you were here last week, you heard Pastor Eric preaching from Luke 14, 1 through 7, the healing of a man on the Sabbath. And we're going to pick back up where we left off, a continuation of what had been going on amongst these guests who had been invited as well as the host. And there's also going to be an additional sermon preached next week that fits into this same storyline regarding the invitation to the great banquet that awaits those of us who've trusted in Christ Jesus As Lord, I wanted to start off this morning with a brief introduction. I'm a big fan of uh, animals and and sports, and so we're going to share a few fun facts about the Kentucky Derby with you before we look here at this passage in Luke 14. And I'm just going to be honest, I didn't know any of these prior to this week except for one, and I'll mention that when we get to it. So let's jump right in. The Kentucky Derby is actually the longest running continuous sporting event in the United States dating all the way back to 1875 fun fact secretariat remains the fastest horse in the Kentucky Derby history set a record in 1973 that's still yet to be broken broken one minute 59.4 seconds only three-year-old horses are allowed to race in the kentucky derby i didn't know that uh, you know there's a lot of rules and regulations of sports and i had to do a double check and make sure it didn't just mean that you had to be at least three years old a horse can only be three years old so you get one shot at it to win the kentucky derby it's never been canceled due to inclement weather they take this event very seriously And I won't list all of these here, but somebody had the time to calculate up the amount of food consumed at the Kentucky Derby, and here's a few fun ones. 142,000 hot dogs, 18,000 barbecue sandwiches, and I don't know where strawberries fit in, but over 300,000. There's a lot more here on this list, but for time's sake, we'll keep moving. The youngest rider to win the Kentucky Derby was only 15 years old. One in 1892. That's pretty impressive. And here's the fact this is the only one I knew, and I imagine most people in here already know this. But riders are called jockeys. And so the jockeys, 20 of them, and their courses, they enter in this race. You have to qualify, of course. You get a lot number, which determines which position you start off in. Those positions are called posts 1 through 20. They all head out of the gate and they start racing. Post number one has been known as the the dreaded rail post because you get boxed in oftentimes on the inside and you don't get to maneuver as much to try to get out in the front to get ahead of the other horses. And posts five and 10 have been the positions that have brought home the most victories. So there's a few fun facts about the Kentucky Derby and I imagine some of you might see where this is going, but for those that don't, we're getting there. It shouldn't come as a surprise We can look at horse races, and this is where we get the idea of jockeying for position. This is known, obviously, as maneuvering or manipulating for one's own benefit. And this expression dates back all the way to the 1900s, originally meaning to maneuver a racehorse into a better position to win. So I I chose this as the opening to this sermon because this is exactly what Jesus sees going on. In this passage. And so before we begin walking through this text, I'd like to show you a brief outline, two parts, broken down into verses 7 through 11 and 12 through 14. The first part is Jesus challenges the guests to a life of biblical humility with a focus on eternity, and we can't leave that part out. And in verses 12 through 14, Jesus challenges the host to a life of biblical hospitality with a focus on eternity. And this goes hand in hand again with what we'll hear preached next week about a great banquet, the greatest banquet that is yet to come for those who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And I'd like to read a brief quote from a commentator that helps set the stage for this passage. Jesus' counsel to his fellow guests and the host would seem to be advice on gracious living related to table etiquette and compiling guest rosters, were it not for the climaxes in 1411 and 1414, which introduce what God will do in the final judgment. So, asterisk somewhere on your notes, verses 11 and 14, this is the deeper meaning that Jesus is driving towards when he's sharing what he is about to share and with that being said, let's jump into our, our first part. Again, the title, Jesus Challenges the Guests to a Life of Biblical Humility with a Focus on Eternity. And it's a short passage, so I'm actually going to read it again for you. Luke 14:7 through 11 he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame. You will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, Friends, move up higher, then you will be honored. And then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So we'll begin and try and set the sage with a little cultural background from some of the reading and studying that I was doing leading up to this sermon today. I read about how it would be very likely in a gathering like this to be around a table in somewhat of a U shape with some couches there at the bottom or maybe one at the bottom and couches kind of forming a U around the dinner table with the most distinguished guests being on the right and left of the host and the host being right there at the bottom, the center, the middle of that U. And as you begin to work away from that host, moving away from the base of that you, then these positions would be less distinguished, and then we even see there would be some seats that weren't places of honor at all. And unlike weddings in our day and time, when the ceremony wraps up and you head to the reception and you can look at the seating chart, you find your table number and your name and see who's sitting with you, they would kind of have to pick and choose their seats on their own. There weren't assigned seats. And much like our day and time, you may be one of these folks or have friends who are, you've got those that come in fashionably late, whether on purpose or they just quite can't get their things together to get there in time. It wouldn't have been uncommon, especially for even more distinguished guests, to show up a little late. And that sets the stage for what's going on. And you may remember last week, Pastor Eric was preaching and saying that it was very likely that the man with dropsy who Jesus healed on this particular Sabbath day was planted there as a trap to see if Jesus would heal him. And it says that they were watching him. And today the tables have turned. And what we're about to hear is what Jesus responds to after what he sees. How he sees the guests acting and looking at the, the roster, so to speak, that the host put together. And so in verses 8 through 10, we see Jesus giving the do not and the do. Pretty straightforward and simple, right? When you go to a wedding feast, don't don't take the seat of honor. Don't take a seat of honor. Lest somebody might come in later more honorable, distinguished, higher in society than you. And what Jesus was seeing was that jockeying for position. These guys trying to get ahead in society, so to speak. Self-exaltation. They want to be in those places to be honored by man. Not just necessarily to be closer to the host. To be seen as closer to the host. That it might have positive ramifications on their social networking outside of this context. They're jockeying for position. He sees that they have their chests out and their heads held high. Don't don't take that seat of honor because you actually might have to take the walk of shame later on. If one of the fashionably late distinguished guests comes in and you're in their seat, the host is going to come up in front of everybody else and kind of ask you to take a hike. And then you go take the lowest seat. And so Jesus' counter to that is to say, instead, take the lowest seat that your host might then say, come on up here, friend. And then you get to be honored in front of everybody. (laughs) So if it ended there, we'd have to rework this whole sermon and all the illustrations because that wouldn't be very humble That'd be like false and secret humility. You're going to look humble, but actually the goal is going to be to go lower so you get to be raised up higher in front of everybody else. That doesn't really sound very humble at all, but thankfully it doesn't end there. We have verse 11, the deeper meaning that Jesus is trying to drive home here. Those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And these ideas aren't anything new. There are cross-references galore, and I'm just going to go ahead and let you know ahead of time there will be a lot of cross-referencing done today. I feel like Scripture will be able to support and speak into this well. I try my best to, to list those up before you on the screen so you can jot those down. Don't feel like you have to turn with me every time we go somewhere. But let me just start with a few references here. Again, this isn't a new idea. This isn't anything new. Luke 11:43. 43 Jesus says, Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Similarly, in Luke 20, 45 through 47, And in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, and the best seats in the synagogues, and the places of honor at feasts. And then listen to what it says here at the end. Who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And we can even look back to the Old Testament in Proverbs 25, 6-7 through 7, and see something very similar. Do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it's better to be told come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble And before we too quickly pick on these Pharisees, and that is very easy to do, we see Jesus' disciples jockeying for position as well. We actually don't even have to look outside of Luke. We've already been here in chapter 9, verse 46, a section entitled, Who's the Greatest? It says that an argument arose among them, them being Jesus' disciples, as to which of them was the greatest. Imagine that following this humble leader and bragging about and trying to throw out what you've done and jockeying for a position amongst yourselves. We won't read through this right now, but Matthew 20, 22 through 28, you have the mother of the sons of Zebedee asking for her two sons to sit at Jesus' right and left hand in the kingdom to come. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. And some animosity kind of builds up amongst the disciples. Surprise, surprise. And if we're honest, it looks a little different maybe in 2022, but sometimes very much the same. There's a lot of ways that our prideful hearts do the exact same things as we see here that the Pharisees do and the disciples do. Sin manifests itself in all sorts of ways. And I'm going to mention a few here, and this isn't meant to point fingers. I just want to let you know the list was easy to make because I am a very prideful, sinful person. Praise God, saved by the blood of Jesus. But I mess up. And a lot of these, if not all of these, I have done personally. And a repeat offender, to be honest. What about those who love to be heard, praying long prayers with fancy theological words in them? Not pouring out your heart before God in a humble fashion, but praying so that people actually literally just hear the words you're saying that they might say, Oh, wow, what a spiritual person. Matthew 6, 5 through 6 speaks into this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners. Why? That they may be seen by others. Or wanting others to hear about all the cool things that we've done and our accomplishments. I'm guilty of doing that. Getting upset at others' accomplishments when they've done nothing wrong in receiving them promotion at work that you wanted that someone else got who hadn't been there half as long as you've been someone else got the role someone else got the job someone else got the scholarship they didn't do anything wrong and yet our our hearts turn inward or kids or adults that's not fair i wanted that and didn't get it he got more than me or what about sarcasm that in, in and of itself isn't necessarily wrong but again all of these things go back to the motives of your heart was the motive to Crack a joke at someone else's expense that you might be seen as funny and witty and the the cool guy. Name dropping. Trying to throw out someone's name that you might be associated with them to to get into a higher position. I worked in a prior job where uh, meeting with folks in one-on-ones was very common, whether it be for discipleship or mentorship or accountability. And it was very common at times for people to say who they had their one-on-ones with that day. Oh, hey, I gotta go. I've got a one-on-one with insert distinguished professor's name here or popular person on the hall right just to not not encourage others towards discipleship and mentorship and accountability but to say hey i made it onto their calendar i might be seen as someone of higher status as a result of that or why are they wearing that i'd look way better in those clothes or whatever We're, we're glory seekers we want to be honored we want to be seen by man. And if you made it through that entire list and you're like, none of those applied to me, how about this one? Just trying to get the last word in with a roommate, a sibling, a parent, a coworker, a spouse. Just for the sake of being heard, making sure they know you're right, making sure they know they're wrong, making sure that they know how much you know. We've all been guilty of these things. We focus on our own many worldly kingdoms more than and in replace of the heavenly kingdom that we've heard about here in the book of Luke. And again, that wasn't meant to make anybody feel bad. And if we stopped there, shame on me, right? Like, so what does it look like to then live lives of biblical humility? And I don't just mean humility in a worldly sense because you can just hop on a tablet, a computer, a dictionary and look up all sorts of definitions on humility and they don't quite cut it. Some of those might sound like things like having or showing a modest or low estimate of one's own importance fair enough good definition of humility in general not proud or haughty not arrogant but they don't quite cut it when we talk about what biblical humility looks like and so on this next slide you'll see that we look to scripture for our example of humility and i'm just going to read through a few of these again you can jot these down we look not only to Scripture, but we look to Jesus as our example of what true humility looks like. So I just, as we read through some of these verses, want you to listen as you try to maybe formulate in your own mind what a good definition of biblical humility is and how we seek to live that out. Here's where our application comes in. 1 John 2.6, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. When I was younger, I memorized that in a different translation and it said something similar. Whoever claims to live in him must walk as Jesus did. If we're going to claim to be his followers, our lives should emulate his in many ways. At the end of the story about the mother with the two sons of Zebedee asked to sit at Jesus' right and left hand, here's Jesus' actual response as we circle back around to it. Verses 26 through 28. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom for many. John 13, I love the passage on Jesus washing his disciples' feet. When that's over, I missed this for many years. Once that act of service was done, that act of humility, Jesus says, I've done this as an example that you should do for others as I have done for you. John 3.30, he must become greater I must become less. A couple more passages here that begin to flesh this out more. What does this look like? Listen to Colossians 3, 12-13. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And this begins to show you what this might look like. Bearing with one another... And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. That's an act of humility in and of itself, seeking forgiveness from those that you've trespassed against or extending that to someone who's trespassed against you. And it likely comes as no surprise that we'll land here in Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. And I'm going to read through that in just a moment. And I want you to just listen If I had to create a definition of biblical humility, I think you could do it simply from these verses. And I hope that this is encouraging to you as we read through this. Looking to Christ as our example. This is a a passage classically known about Christ's humiliation and then his exaltation. Listen to this. Philippians 2, starting in verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant I think we could get a great working definition of what biblical humility is, just from that. Not considering equality with God a theme to be grasped, that's a no-brainer. Doing nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. Counting others more significant than yourselves. Looking not only to our own interests, but to the interests of others. Humbling ourselves before God and humbling ourselves before our brothers and sisters. As I prayed earlier, thinking less of ourselves, more of others, and the most of God. And this directly ties back into what we see in Luke 14 11, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. There is a future forward thinking that Jesus is talking about here. And what I mean by that is it's not actually a guarantee for Christians or non Christians here on earth that if you truly live a lowly, humble life, that you will be honored here on earth in the eyes of man. That could happen, but that is not a guarantee. There are a lot of prideful, haughty, arrogant individuals in this world, and they've made it way far out in the race. And there are a lot of lowly, humble people that may not receive the praise of man here on earth. So you say, well, what is Jesus saying? He's saying that there is a future exaltation to come for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ, his chosen ones, that when their time here on earth is over, there will come a time when we are exalted. And we're going to talk about that more today. We know that in Ephesians 2, it says it's by grace you've been saved through faith in this, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. You can't work for it or earn it. It's been, a, it's been given to you. And at the end of this life, after you have humbled yourself before the Lord and trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, there is a future promise of exaltation that comes. Where we get the sermon title from today, James 4.10, Humble yourselves before the Lord and He will exalt you. So let us not seek to jockey for positions in our workplaces, in our homes, in our relationships. Not be so inward focused that we're solely trying to just build up our kingdoms here on earth. Neglecting the kingdom to come in the days ahead. And let us look to Christ as our example. As we seek to live biblically humble lives. And if feathers weren't ruffled last week enough by those who had been gathered. And if the individuals who were gathered now weren't maybe even more disturbed. The host might be thinking i just dodged a bullet he was addressing all these guests that i invited a bunch of prideful individuals and now jesus turns to the host in verse 12 through 14 where we'll look now again the title of this section jesus challenges the host to a life of biblical hospitality and a focus on eternity so let's read together from luke 14 12 through 14 And again, I'd like to do a little bit of cultural background here to help clear things up a little. It won't come as a surprise, but let me read a quote uh, from one brother that I think helps set the stage here a little more. In ancient culture, the one who hosted a festive meal would be placed on the invitation list for future meals at guests' houses. Jesus argues that such payback, hospitality, has no merit. The best hospitality is given. Not merely exchanged in a kind of unspoken social contract. If God reaches out to all, then those who seek to honor Him should reach out also. So the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind should be invited. Again, those exact same four groups of individuals will be mentioned again next week when we hear of this great banquet. The poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind; the blind and the lame. The poor and the powerless should be be welcome. For such hospitality and humility, God promises blessing at the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus allows no class mentality. So, as a, a host was putting together the invite list, you're thinking, okay, I'm likely going to be getting invited back. Whose house, party, feast, dinner do I want to be invited to? Okay, I know this guy knows these guys. So, if I invite him, I get to go there in being there i'll get to meet these guys it's this social ladder climbing and on top of that if you were to invite someone and they weren't able to repay you there was this form of indebtedness or inferiority that took place between those individuals kind of like hens establishing their pecking order and their dominance So you might would strategically invite somebody that you thought, okay, they're kind of up on the social ladder a little bit, but man, I can kind of exert my richness and societal dominance over them because they probably won't be able to do for me what I'm doing for them. And then they heap verbal praise and thanks upon you. Again, Jesus is calling all of this out. And he's not saying We should not take away from this that you're not allowed to invite your friends or your family over to hang out. We see evidence of that in Scripture. That's a no-brainer. In this room here, I would imagine, for some, the easiest people to hang out with in your life might very well be your family. But on the flip side of that coin, that might be the hardest group of people to hang out with. And so he's not saying you can't invite these people, but not to always and only invite the comfortable, the easy, the convenient, the expected, the ones who are going to reciprocate. He's saying to reach out beyond those barriers, and it may be inconvenient. People that you might not normally rub shoulders with, people that might not be able to repay you, people that might not help you climb the social ladder, but giving out of a humble heart not expecting repayment here on earth, but knowing that there is a future repayment to come from God. And if that's not what Jesus is saying, there's four things I think that we can take away from this text that he is saying, and we'll look at each of those. You'll see those on the screen. I'll mention all four of them now. If you can't have them all written down, that's okay. We'll get back to each one of those in order. First and foremost, as believers... We should live a life marked by biblical hospitality. Very straightforward application from this text. Second, we should evaluate our motives in our hospitality. Third, we should recognize that Jesus is breaking down the barriers of the Pharisees. And fourth, we should look forward to the repayment from God at the resurrection of the just. So let's jump into each of those. First, we should live a life marked by biblical hospitality. We should look to serve and be generous to others without expecting repayment. And that could come in the form of our time, talents, treasures, relationships, opening up our homes, the resources the Lord has blessed us with to be a blessing to others. It makes me think of the Good Samaritan, Luke 10, 25 through 37. We won't read through that passage, but just as a refresher. A man's traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, gets jumped by some robbers, stripped, beaten, and left half dead. A Levite comes by, sees him, and passes by on the other side of the road. A priest sees him as he's passing by, goes around on the other side of the road. And one of the most unlikely individuals to come and help this man on his way down to Jericho is a Samaritan cares for him, puts him on his own horse, takes him to the inn, tells the guy he's going to return, and if he spends anything else taking care of this guy, he'll repay him. And this all came after an interaction that Jesus had with someone saying, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? I know I'm to love the Lord with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and love my neighbor as myself. But this guy was too caught up on who his neighbor is as opposed to looking at the person right in front of him. And after telling this parable, Jesus says, you should go and do likewise. Go show mercy, likely to some people that wouldn't pop onto your radar. Don't get caught up in who your neighbor is. Go and serve. Show mercy, and sometimes it might mean to the least likely. Second, we should evaluate our motives. We've already talked about that. But we need to be generous, and not in a way to get ahead, not self-focused, but others-focused. Matthew 6, 1 through 4 speaks into this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And if we look ahead at verses 3 and 4, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. not giving for selfish gain third we should recognize that jesus is breaking down these barriers that the pharisees have built up socially also you likely may remember pastor eric last week talking about certain laws that were found in scripture but then adding fence laws to them to keep them away from breaking those but holding everyone accountable to these putting weights on people's shoulders that they couldn't bear The Pharisees had a very narrow, hypocritical, self-righteous view of who would inherit eternal life, who they could interact with, who they couldn't interact with, who was worthy of praise. Another commentator, this one won't be on the screen, but I think this is helpful. To their way of thinking, the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind are those from whom God has withheld his blessing. That's what the Pharisees are thinking here. In all likelihood, it was thought that their afflictions were the result of sin. And these people, along with the Gentiles, would be the last people to enter the kingdom of God. Jesus, however, does not share this narrow, self-righteous view. Jesus is teaching that even the lowly may be invited to the kingdom and be welcomed in. And I put may be in there because it's not being poor, crippled, lame, blind, humble, or lowly that gets you into heaven. It's only through saving faith in Jesus Christ. But he's, again, breaking down these barriers, Pharisees stiff-arming certain individuals, and Jesus closing that gap. The kingdom of heaven will be comprised of a much broader group of individuals than these Pharisees anticipated or taught. Matthew 5, 43 through 48 I'll hone in on the last few verses there. It says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Not just loving those who reciprocate in kind. We won't read through this, but James 2, 1-5 talks about the sin of partiality, showing favoritism to the rich and not the poor. I mean, this is all over Scripture, likely because this is something that God's people really struggle with. I know that I do. A, a takeaway from this third point is just that we should reach out beyond our comfortable, easy, convenient relationships and invite others into our lives in order that we might point them to Jesus in doing so. And last, point four, we should look forward to the repayment from God at the resurrection of the just. And we see here in this text in verse 14 there is a future reward to come, even if not experienced here on earth. And I, I can't spell out for you exactly what all heaven's gonna look like and the future rewards and the treasures and exactly what that will entail. Here's a couple verses that speak into it, but there is a reward that we can cling to and hold on to, which we'll read in just a moment. But before that, 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, Paul writing to Timothy says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Luke 18, is about the rich ruler. We all know that interaction, but Jesus tells him to sell all that he has and distribute it to the poor. And what? And you will have treasure in heaven. He says, come and follow me. So there is this idea of treasure and future reward and crowns of righteousness in heaven. Again, I can't really explain what all that's going to look like. Our, the way that we live our lives, we'll have future ramifications on our, on our walk in eternity with the Lord. But this... Next verse is so sweet and something that we can cling to. And again, for believers in Jesus Christ, I hope that this provides encouragement of a future reward that you will be given one day. John 14, 1 through 3. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God and believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself. How sweet is that? That where I am, you may be also. I'm going to read that one more time. I will come again and will take you to myself. That where I am, you may be also. That's a promise and a reward that we can cling to and look forward to in heaven a few things here, God is indeed saying that he will be the one to do the repaying. And it's not anything that we can pay him back for. Just like we couldn't work for our salvation, we can't repay the Lord for the rewards he's blessed us with or will bless us with in the future. We can't repay him even if we tried. But an invitation has been given to us and it's something we should rejoice in and want to take just a moment for any who might be here today that haven't accepted that invitation of eternal life through Christ Jesus. It does take a humble heart to recognize that we are indeed sinners in need of a Savior and our sin has separated us from God. But God sent His Son Jesus to die on a cross and shed His blood for us that if we would believe in our hearts, confess with our mouths, Jesus is Lord. Admit that we're sinners in need of a Savior and that that Savior is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone that will be saved. That invitation is there and I encourage you to accept that. If that's something you want to talk more about or have some questions about, I would encourage you to come up front at the end of the service today. I'll stick around. Or maybe there's a friend who invited you that you have some good lunch conversation coming up today. and You maybe have some questions for them that they can walk you through. But there is need for a clarification. It is not being poor, crippled, lame, or blind, or humble, or lowly that gets one into heaven. It's through Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone and putting our faith and trust in him. So we've taken a look at several passages on humility and hospitality today, so I'd like to begin to enter into landing the plane here with some some additional application. If you've been around at CCF for a while, you may remember we had a conference or a seminar on the topic of hospitality. We spoke about a lady named Rosaria Butterfield who's written a great book called, and I do have to read this, it's a long title. The first part, the gospel comes with a house key. Subtitle Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in Our Post Christian World. I want to read a couple quotes from her, and I hope this is a source of encouragement as we seek to apply some of these things we've heard today. She defines radically ordinary hospitality as using our Christian home in a daily way that seeks to make strangers, neighbors, and neighbors family of God. Such hospitality makes your home a hospital, a place where people can find healing and grace, physical and spiritual good. It makes your home an incubator, a place where people can be built up, supported, and strengthened in Christ. And she proposes that this idea of radically ordinary hospitality, that's just what Christians are supposed to do. It should be ordinary, but often isn't. So some direct application as we seek to close. Let us humble ourselves before the Lord and before one another, looking to the interests of others, showing mercy to others, being mindful of our acquaintances and the motives behind them, Looking for ways to be biblically hospitable. Maybe that means your small group talking about going to serve a meal at the Dayton Gospel Mission. I'm not using this as a plug for our local ministries, but this fits perfectly. Maybe it's adopting a family through the Miami Valley Women's Center and um, showering them with some gifts for Christmas that they might not be able to do themselves. Maybe this comes at a, a great time of the year. Thanksgiving's right around the corner. Maybe that does mean inviting that individual to the, to the family meal who you know doesn't have a place to go or might be a little difficult to get along with. Or college students in, inviting a hallmate home that doesn't have a place to go. Or an international student whose home's thousands of miles away. In our missions class a few weeks ago, we had mentioned a statistic that uh, around 80% of international students that come to study in the States never step foot in the home of an American mother here. And so whatever that looks like, it may be different for each individual in different seasons of life. But we should have Romans 12, 6 mindsets that we'd be willing to associate with people of lower position. And I have our, our last passage to read through as I look to see what kind of summarizes all that we've talked about today. The future judgment, serving, being merciful, hospitable. You can look to Matthew 25, 31 through 40. You can begin to turn there, or I'll just read that for you. I think this is a sweet way to end our time together. But when we seek to live this life with an eternal, heavenly kingdom focus, we can indeed cling to the promise that God will repay us in the days ahead. But we should also remember that while we are here on earth, not only do we have opportunities to serve others, we have an opportunity to serve the Lord himself. And that is sweet. And that's what we will hear in Matthew 25. Again, starting in 31 through 40, and this will be the close to the message today. You can read with me here. When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. Before Him will be gathered all the nations, and He will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And He will place the sheep on His right, but the goats on the left... And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Let's pray.